And thank you, uh, choir. Uh, it is good. It is uh, something special to be together and to hear people around you singing. Um, it's it's pretty, pretty spectacular. So if you're clicking, you probably have social media or on your phone, so there's you click stuff, uh, you uh, have certain looks, what do I wear, what do I wear, people are asking that more and more. We didn't ask that a year ago, um, it was sort of business on top and PJs on the bottom. It's kind of like the uh, mullet, uh, but with clothes, I guess. Never thought of that, but it's kind of... So we have, you know, is it clicks, is it looks that you prefer, things that you like, or that you, you click like, you click love. It's true. We have favorites. Humans have favorites. And by favorites, favorites mean that you like something or prefer something over something else. So when you compare, you go, no, I like, th this is my favorite. This is my best. I really like this. I'm going to use this. And it could be food. It could be uh, music. It could be uh, brands. It could be your favorite vacation spot. It just seems like human nature. The unfortunate part about it, though, is that it seeps into um, our social lives and even our spiritual lives. And we develop favorites and, could I say, biases when it comes to spirituality and when it even comes to other people. Favoritism. God is biased. He has a bias. But the question we're exploring this morning is, to what is God partial? To what is God partial and how can that possibly mean and be good news? And so this morning, I invite you again to turn in your Bibles to the book of James. As you know, we're in a series going through the book of James. Um, and now we're in chapter 2. And here James, I, I call him Pastor James, but here James writing and speaking to the congregation again. Hear these words of James written to the congregation in his day. James chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. My brothers and sisters, and by now you've heard me say this a few times, when he's, he often, he, he continually identifies with the congregation. Brothers and sisters, beloved, he's identifying with them. This is a love relationship. He says, my brothers and sisters, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? For if a person with gold rings and in fine clothes comes into your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, have a seat here, please. While the one who is poor, you say, stand over there or sit at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? You show favoritism, James says to the congregation. And a kind of favoritism that is in contradiction to the Lord Jesus Christ. And interestingly, James is clearly influenced by the book of Leviticus. 
the book of Leviticus. Chapter 19, 15, uh, the book of Leviticus, it says exactly this. Don't be partial to, and the word uh, phrase that is used there is defer to the greater. In Leviticus 19.15. But that's what's happening here. He says what happens is you notice the difference. You make a distinction. And then you prefer and you make one a favorite. And that is going on from a socioeconomic perspective. But also a spiritual perspective. A socioeconomic perspective in terms of wealth and look and appearance, but also from a spiritual perspective as though one is better or more favorable than the other. The problem that James is identifying with the congregation is, it's a social and a relational problem. Listen to me. It isn't that problem isn't about differences. There are differences. Of course there are. The problem is favoritism or being partial because of a difference. He continues, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters. Has God not chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you? James to the congregation says, the rich are the ones that are oppressing people. They oppress the poor indirectly through systems and structures that they establish to keep poor people in their place. By systems and structures, and then even directly, and again, it's from a social economic perspective and also a spiritual perspective, because by the time we get into uh, 50 AD, 70 AD, and 100 AD, the synagogue leaders had established an extra 600 plus rules that people needed to follow, and it was weighing them all down. He continues in verse 8. You do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For the one who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but if you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. James to the congregation says, we, you and I, all of us are transgressors. We are all law breakers. It would seem that what James is indicating here is that the congregation seemed to have a hierarchy of laws. And sin, this law, and then this law, and this law, and he's pointing out that you could, one law is about adultery, another law is about murder. And incidentally, when Jesus is preaching, he actually goes to the internal and says, adultery externally, but internally, if you lust for somebody, that's adultery. Murder can be external, but it can be internal. If you hate somebody, it's like you're committing murder. But now James is saying, listen, actually, if you miss one thing, you're responsible for it all. Well, therefore, all of us are lawbreakers. 
He's pointing out that actually we're the same. You're making distinctions, he says to the congregation, but it turns out that we're all the same. He says you're exercising prejudices between peoples, but even more strikingly, you have exercising a prejudice between people and yourself. When in reality, from a spiritual perspective, there is no difference between people and yourself because we're all transgressors. So it's a distinction without a difference. That's the preaching of James to his congregation. And he's just getting warmed up. The New Testament writers to the churches. Oh, they would bring it. I wonder where we locate ourselves as we hear these first few verses. Where do we locate ourselves, like individually and as a church? How would we locate ourselves in what's being said so far? Because how we hear things shapes how we interpret what is being said. How we hear things interprets how we believe and what we believe from what is said. And I just want to say something, by the way, that the scriptures are authoritative, not your or my interpretations of it. It's scripture. But I think we probably are uncomfortable at this point. I'm uncomfortable preaching this section. You're uncomfortable hearing this section because in reality, for in the grand scheme of things, we're all would be considered fairly wealthy people. We locate ourselves with the rich. We're uncomfortable also because we're a congregation that is diverse. There's many different ethnicities and people groups here. And do we actually show favoritism? This makes us uncomfortable. Because, well, what about spiritually when it comes to laws? Have we kind of constructed a hierarchy of which laws are like this and which laws are like that? And we kind of have that and we use that to kind of evaluate and judge other people. Well, they broke three and I'm only at five. So, ooh. This is kind of uncomfortable. It is a bit uncomfortable. We feel kind of called out, maybe a little bit exposed at this point, what is going to happen next. But culturally, and in churches, in the worldview and churches, we do tend, if we just want to be transparent here, over history, churches and culture have tended towards favoritism and biases. And especially when it comes to, and that could be a danger for us. Socially, economically, spiritually. It was interesting to see that, you know, it's the rich that take people to court. I won't digress. But they'll even put that business on TV and they'll get all kinds of likes. But the way our social structures work, it seems that as one... Uh, Scholar and researcher put it, from a social justice perspective, it seems like the rich and guilty have a better chance and are more favored than the poor and innocent in our systems and structures. To even get proper representation, a lawyer or that sort of thing. But the danger is that it can seep into churches. And historically, this has been the case. 
where it can be dangerous, where maybe we show a bit of partiality to people who tithe more, or that they look like they tithe more, or people that are particularly vocal, or people that say a lot of stuff, or are very verbal, people that are, you know, uh, have a high profile or, or like to be noticed, and maybe, maybe that's who we show partiality to. And there's, our, our bias is exposed because we, it's called a misplaced trust. It seems like we would trust in matters of materiality and position as opposed to trusting on the mighty to save God. Where are we placing our trust? But there's more to being human. We, there's a couple of things about that make it particularly difficult for us as people who are human. I want to give you a little test to, to, to demonstrate this a little bit. The first question, if you could put the first question up on the, on the screen there, uh, is this. So, would Miss Beasy be a good teacher? Now, here's what you need to know about Miss Beasy. Miss Beasy is intelligent and strong. Now, would you say Miss Beasy would be a good teacher? Anybody? Yeah, put up your hand if you think yes. Miss Beasy would be a good teacher. Put up your hand. Okay, you're kind of hesitant. Yeah, everybody's going, wait a second. What's he tricking us? <laughs> That's what's going on here. See, well, what if I said also that she's cruel and corrupt? Well, that would change your answer entirely. You see, uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Daniel Kahneman is... Uh, uh, professor of psychology emeritus at Princeton, and he says what the brain does is something called YZ Addy. It stands for what you see is all there is. Okay, what you see is all there is. And our brains tend to do that. We see somebody, and with a couple of bits of information, we make a conclusion, we draw conclusions, and uh, we have this system in a way of thinking, and we literally jump to a conclusion. It's a form of exercise of jumping to conclusions. And it's based on very little information, but we tend to do that. Let me give you another uh, example. This is a little different, and I know I've already set you up here a little. But here's the next picture. Here's a woman in uh, New York subway, and she's reading the Globe, or Global News. Now, is this woman who's reading this newspaper more likely to have no college or university education, or more likely to have a PhD? Uh, PhD people, put up your hands. Uh, I mean, people that think she's a PhD. <laughs> okay. College, no college or university education. Put up your hands. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, it kind of, the reality is, again, we, we jump to a conclusion and we get pretty confident in our answer. But if we would pause even for a moment, the reality is that the, the ratio of people with a PhD to the ratio of people that don't have a university college education is pretty high. So the likelihood of her having a PhD education is very low, regardless of whether she's reading a newspaper or not. But we are very quick to jump to conclusions and make uh, a determination and even be pretty confident in the decision we've made, even though we have like three pieces of information and we do it in like 60 seconds. But we're confident. That's called YZ Addy. The other problem or challenge with us as human beings is that we have what Dr. Kahneman calls an associative machine. We make associations. And we, make, we, we see something, it develops an impression on us, and that impression turns into a belief. And so ideas and words 
prime certain actions through this association. So when we see something, we associate someone, we associate it with something, and that turns into a belief. And so we have all of this challenge. Now that can be good. It can be good, but it can also be a challenge. God has a bias too. To what is God partial? And how can this be good news? Well, go back. Let's go back and look at chapter 2, verse 8. You will do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The royal law. And again, it's um, remarkable. Some of us have kind of, maybe you've dismissed the book of Leviticus. But James is riffing off to the Le Leviticus again. It's 1918, just a few verses down. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he calls this the royal law. And again, also, Jesus talks about this as well. The good news is that there actually is a hierarchy of laws. There is a hierarchy of laws, and this is it. He calls it the royal law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And you say, well, wait a second. Aren't we supposed to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Yeah. Jesus said, love the Lord your God, 22, 37 to 40. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. And he said, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, how you love your neighbor and yourself is an expression of God's love. How you love God? Love your neighbor and yourself. How do you love God? Love your neighbor and yourself. That's the good news. There is a hierarchy. In fact, this is the sum and substance of all the law and the prophets. Jesus said that himself. On these two depend all the law and the prophets. It's not replacing the laws. It's not replacing or narrowing. It is just kind of like the thin edge or the sharp edge of the wedge. It's the sharp edge, the thin edge of all the law and the prophets put together. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's good news. And it's good news for all of us as congregants. James speaking to the congregation, he says it's good news for you and for us because as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, now we have a focus. He's made it really kind of simple, clear, and direct. It's specific. He says, fulfill that law. <laughs> it's kind of like, start there. Fulfill that law. Figure that one out. Fulfill that law. If I was using sort of contemporary vernacular, it would be uh, swipe right, click like, click favorite, click heart. That's the royal law. Press save. And fulfill that law. Make it your favorite. Love the Lord your God. It's in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6. It's in Leviticus. And then it's in Matthew 22, 37 to 40. It's in Luke. I mean, it's, it's just everywhere. Then there's 12 to 13. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Another phrase. Royal law. By the law of liberty. He calls it law of liberty now. Because it's the law of freedom. It's the law that gives freedom. He says. So act and so speak. As those who are to be judged. By the law of liberty. For judgment will be without mercy. To anyone who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So the good news is. 
that God uses this very same royal law in the way he judges and decides things. Speak and act. Speak and act as though you're going to be judged by this royal law. Speak and act as though you're going to be assessed and judged based on how you love your neighbor and love yourself. The good news is that mercy is an act of the royal law. Mercy is an act. If we're trying to figure out what law or what love is, mercy is an act of the royal law. Mercy is kindness. It is compassion. Here's another word. It is empathy. And it is through God, the Father's mercy, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort that He provided a way to be, for us to be forgiven through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what God, the Father, the Father of mercies, He notices... He is concerned, and now he moves in compassion and empathy, and he takes action. And all of that is the process of mercy. And that we see through the Lord Jesus Christ. Throughout the, the, the scriptures of Old Testament and on through New Testament, the Father of mercies notices, Adam and Eve, where are you? The children in Egypt... And on it goes. He notices and he has concern. And then he expresses compassion. And he empathizes to the degree that he sends his only son. The word becomes flesh. That is ex empathy extraordinaire. He takes action. All of that is mercy. Fulfilling the royal law. And it's what it means to what it looks like to be fully truly human. We have the negative traits of human nature, but now Jesus shows us the, the wonderful divine traits of what it truly looks like to be truly, fully, wonderfully human. And he finishes with this. It's as though James has buried the lead in this section. He says that mercy triumphs over judgment. That's God's perspective. And thank goodness... And it can be our perspective as well. It means that mercy has more power and potential than judgment. Mercy has more power and potential than judgment. Mercy changed human history in the cross of Jesus Christ. It was mercy. I did not come into the world to judge the world, but that the world would be saved, healed through me. Has the world felt judged? Yes. But it's through the Father of all mercies that he sent his Son to deliver and rescue us. So God's bias. God is partial to mercy, to kindness, compassion, empathy. He's partial to that. Mercy. It's mercy. And that is the good news. It is good news for us. And it is good news for everyone when... Followers of Jesus Christ as we move into our daily routine and we favor mercy over judgment. The people you come in contact with, I can tell you, need mercy, compassion, kindness, empathy. 
You want to rock somebody's world? Be present with them and show some mercy. And, and then wait. Wait for the Holy Spirit. Pentecost Sunday. You will receive power. The word is dunamis. It's where we get our word dynamite from. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Acts 1.8. You will be my witnesses. Witnesses of mercy. Mercy is the difference maker. If we're looking for a difference, let's look at mercy. Mercy is the one that makes the difference. And the Lord showed us mercy even though we could not ever repay him. And that's the beginning where we look at what is freedom is all about. Because when we extend mercy to people, it's not because of anything that we could get reciprocally or get in return. We just lavish. We have freedom to express kindness and compassion without judgment. The law of liberty without any concern for getting something in return. <laughs> I believe James is writing this to the congregation to inspire and empower them to acts of love. Royal law. The divine love. You know, it's interesting to me that in our day and throughout history, the concept of love has been relegated either to a feeling or to intercourse. You know, I feel, oh, I feel like I'm falling in love or let's make love. And it's just been relegated to that. And we got to ask ourselves, who's giving us a definition of love? Where do you get your idea of love from? Who's giving you, who are you giving authority to speak about what love is? And I want to urge you, as James is doing, to consider the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, and to look at Jesus as the one who gives love. And he says in 1 John 3.18, let's not love by word or tongue, by saying things, he says, but in deed and truth, in deed and truth. So we have a freedom, friends. This law of liberty. It frees us from and it frees us to. It frees us from sin. The law of liberty because the Lord has set us free. So it has set us free from, from sin and condemnation. From, from laws that we are just encumbered and burdened and weighed down by. It, it sets us free, but it also sets us free to join the Lord Jesus Christ in his kingdom work of spreading royal love. Setting us free to express mercy towards other people without concern for what we'll get back. Or any concern for an internal rate of return. We are free to express it. And what's really wonderful about this is when we do that. We become more like Jesus Christ and we actually become more what it is meant to look like to be fully, truly human. To be fully, truly human, looking at Jesus, looks like mercy and grace. To be fully and truly human.